Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Welcome. Good morning. We're so, so glad to have you with us here at Orchards Community Church. Special thanks to those joining us online. This is the third week in our Advent series. We're talking about things that we're excited about because they have come once and things we get excited about because we know they're coming again. And, and so we're talking about that if you have a music playlist. You, you love the songs that you're listening to, but you know you also like the next song coming, right? Because you picked that as well. And so as the video described, we've talked about a lot of neat things at Christmas. Talked about hope and joy and peace. And, and we'll, we'll talk about joy next week. But today we're going to talk specifically about love. What that looks like for us. What do we actually celebrate at Christmas? And so this has been a fun study. When, when we talked about hope, we talked about the fact that it's not hope the way we normally think about it. It's confident assurance that God is going to shower hope out on us because of Jesus. We, we talked about peace last week. Peace we have in this troubled world and peace that we can have for eternity. I want to give just a, a little special heads up. We're going to talk about love this week. We're going to talk about joy next week, and that's going to be a little unique for us because I've got knee replacement surgery scheduled this Wednesday, so that is a message on the big board. We're all going to watch a video together, and so that'll be exciting, but then, Lord willing, I'll be back in time for our Christmas Eve services on my wheelchair, so a little update about, <laughs> about where we are and where we're going. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to grab that. Join me. First John is where we're going to be today. John is often referred to as the apostle of love, and so that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to take a deep dive into love, right? Because Scripture tells us God is love. And in a very loving action, we understand that he sent his son the first time. And, of course, if we've read the rest of the book, we know that perfect love is coming again because Jesus will return. But, but we just got to be honest. Talking about love is kind of tricky. It's tricky for people. Because we mess it up immediately. We start talking about raw emotions. We talk about those butterflies we get when we fall in love. And there's neat things that go along with love. We talk about passion, commitment, sacrifice. But there are also some, some things that are not so neat, right? Put a lot of ourselves into love. We start talking about idolatry and selfishness. I love peanut butter. But it's not a good love. <laughs> it's kind of a creepy love when you really think about it. It's kind of an obsession, right? And so when we talk about love, do we talk about it correctly? And then if we talk about it right, do we actually demonstrate it well? I think that's a struggle. I was talking to a fellow here in the church, and last year at Christmas, he ended up in the doghouse with his wife pretty hard. And, and he came to see me about it, and I said, man, what are you struggling with? And he says, well, here's the deal, Pastor James. I'm not a good gift giver. So last year, I specifically went to my wife and I asked her what she wanted for Christmas because I love her. I want to show her. I went to her. I said, baby, what should I get you? And she point blank told him. And he got her what she asked for. And she was furious. She was very upset. And I thought, man, maybe I misheard this guy. I said, hold on. You, you went to her. She told you what to get. You got it. And she still got mad? He said, I know, right? I figured this is some kind of breakdown in communication. So I said, okay, you tell me 
word for word exactly what she said. And he said, she shared with me, nothing would make me happier than a diamond necklace. So I got her nothing. It's what she asked for. <laughs> See how we're prone to make mistakes? <laughs> we're trying to figure out love. Here's the thing I can guarantee today. God does not make mistakes. For most of us trying to grasp the enormity of God's love, it's difficult for us because it's so much more than our finite little minds can understand. It's not just that God is loving. We're going to see in this passage today, John's going to explain God is love. And that's where we have the smoke start to come out of our ears. We try to grasp the complexity of God because of all his character qualities, and we just can't get there. We hear God is love. We know God is just. God is righteous. And we try to break that down into a box that we can comprehend. We go, well, sometimes I'm loving, right? I can be just. Sometimes I am righteous. But, but that's not the same thing. Those character attributes that describe God, they're not what he does. They're who he is. So I want us to look at this passage together today because I think it will kind of help us shape and define exactly how God being love plays out for us. And if we can start to grasp that, that should help us celebrate God's love a bit more correctly this Advent season. So if you grabbed an outline on your way and you've already got this text, if not, we'll have it on the Sky Bible. This is 1 John chapter 4. Let's read verses 8 and 9. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because, and this is a bold claim, God is love. In this, in what, John? He's going to explain it in a second. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. You ready? Here it is. That God sent his only son into the world. Why did he do it, John? So that we might live through him. Now, manifest is a neat word, but it literally just means made visible, right? So where did God make this love visible? As he's acting lovingly, how did he show us? Well, he did it among us. The big concept we talk about every Christmas. We, we mention the word Emmanuel. Christmas is the only time we talk about it. But that means God is with us. Little translation is he's the with us God. And he came to do that so that we might live through Jesus and live like Jesus. But do we comprehend the enormous theological implication of God doing that? Do we really grasp that the God of the universe lowered himself? He humbled himself to come down and put on one of these, right? It's another neat theological word we talk about, God incarnate. He came and he put on one of these flesh cartons. Now, your flesh carton is probably in better shape than my flesh carton. You're, you're probably not going to get part of your flesh carton sawed out and thrown away this week. So you may be feeling pretty good about your earthly tent. But that whole concept of God coming down and putting on skin, that's mind-blowing to us. And I don't know that we focus on it enough in the Christmas story. Do we understand we're saying God came down and became a little baby? And what happens to little babies? They need to be fed. They need to have their diaper changed. They need to be burped. They need to take a nap. All those things that babies need, now Jesus needs. That's the picture of God coming as Emmanuel. And that isn't a myth, right? That's not just a fun story we tell every year at Christmas. If we would do our historical research, there's a lot of people who wrote about this Jesus guy. 
It's not just the weight of the Bible that has to carry all the water in this account. But when we read the Bible, when we correlate the entirety of the Scripture, we get this whole picture. Jesus came as God in the flesh. He just first came with very little flesh because he came in such a tiny little package, right? He came as the baby in the manger. How he showed up, I think, is pretty well established. The deeper question to me is why? Why did he show up? Why did God lower himself to this earth and become incarnate? The Apostle Paul does a phenomenal job of answering that to the church that met in Philippi. He says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and let me just pause for a second and say that's, that's a Greek writing style choice, okay? Paul's not saying if, as if there's supposed to be some encouragement from Jesus showing up. No, the intent is to say this is the most encouraging thing you can possibly imagine. This is how this is supposed to play out, right? People should take comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. All those things should occur when people profess faith in Jesus. And then Paul gets super practical. He starts hitting the application points. Verse 2, complete my joy. We'll talk a lot more about joy next week. He says, complete my joy how? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, why should Christ's followers do that, Paul? Verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We're supposed to consider others before ourselves. Why? Because we want to be like Jesus, and that's what he does. That's specifically what he did when he came to be Emmanuel who though in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. We could spend a lot of time just on this verse. How did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant, by putting on one of these flesh cartons, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God showed up in the form of a man, but first he came as a a little fetus, and then he grew, he matured to be an earthly man, to go to the cross to give us a chance for eternal life, and to model how to live on earth. Jesus came for, to, to model how to love correctly while he lived among us. Kind of a twofold purpose. He was going to show us love and then model how we're supposed to live it. And we could take a big time out here and start comparing and contrasting and explaining the difference between merely existing, right, between drawing breath on this planet versus living abundantly the way God wants us to, living in love. Because there's a difference for sure. You know people. I know people who draw breath day in and day out. I'm not saying they don't exist, right? I think it's just so evident, and we see this in Scripture, God wants more for those people. He wants so much more for them. But it's not just us. It's not just Christ followers who have jobs and 
go out to eat and watch football games and get married and have kids. But here's the thing. I believe without an eternal relationship with our Creator, there's a cap on those things. I believe if we don't know Jesus, there's kind of a governor on those things. And and the folks who know Jesus are going to enjoy those things fully. Working, loving, parenting, enjoying a good steak, good company. The best of all those things comes in recognizing that they come from God. God grants those things. God created us to worship him, to thank him for all those blessings. And folks who don't follow Jesus won't thank him. I think it's the thanks that gives those things the the supreme weight. James puts it this way. He says, we we worship God for what? Every good and perfect thing that comes down from above. And we do that because we're created as worshiping beings. Every person on this planet. This is what's been so awkward for me over the years. I've had the opportunity to talk to people who say they're atheists. They they literally say they believe there's no God. And what they've done is they've made that their God. They've made the wish for God to not exist to be their lowercase g God. They worship that. They just don't admit it. But it's like we talked about last week. We're all wired with eternity in our hearts, right? And so to believe there's nothing, we got to fight that down. <laughs> we we got to wrestle with that in the way we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and to pretend there's nothing, to really do that, If our belief is that lightning randomly struck some pile of goo, lightning struck a a mud puddle and people crawled out, and then those mud people, when they draw their last cosmic breath, they have an eternity of nothing waiting for them, I got a lot of faith. I don't have that much faith. (laughs) I don't think that makes any sense at all. Some people say that faith in God is unreasonable. I would contend that mankind being created in the image of God takes less faith than the mud people story. (laughs) I'm just not getting behind that one. If we we literally were created by lightning striking mud, how how are we supposed to love the other mud people? I I don't know how this plays out versus being created in the image of our triune God, who the Apostle John says is love, and then we demonstrate that love towards one another. We can find out about it by reading God's word. We can find out about it by knowing God, recognizing he sent his son. Pay the wages of mankind's sin. Jesus came that first time to make that offer of eternal life with God for anyone who professes faith in him. And Jesus is coming back to take all of his followers with him for eternity. That makes sense to me. It's hard to grasp, but it's easier than mud people. And here in John 1, we read that Jesus' coming makes that visible. God manifests that for us. Why? So that we can live in love so that we can have real life. That raises another interesting question. Well, okay, Pastor James, what does this real life that God is offering look like? What did God hope to accomplish by sending Jesus? We can go to the book for this one, John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief, who's that? That's the prince of this world. Not the king of this world, right? It's the prince of this world, Satan. He comes only to steal and kill and destroy. God says, I came the person of Jesus, I came that people may have life and have it abundantly. There's a lot of meat on that bone about how to live abundantly with Jesus as our example. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. But, But our focus today in this third week of Advent is how do we love like Jesus with these lives that he has given us? 
Since God is love, how are we supposed to go out and demonstrate how to live? And John takes the bulk of his inspired writing in the Bible to explain how those two concepts work together. What's the problem? We're human. (laughs) We have a hard time grasping everything he teaches because he is so infinite and we are so finite. So what do we do? We misconstrue God's love. Most of the time because we romanticize it, right? We, we try to make it all bells and whistles and, and watching the notebook. And, and, and when we do that, every attempt we have at demonstrating love is going to fall short. That's when we buy nothing instead of the diamond necklace. The problem is not God. It's us. It's our limited understanding. It's our human frailty. I watch a lot of comedians online. I'm always looking for sermon jokes. The other day, I watched a comedian, and it was funny. And he was talking about the world we live in, and he was talking about people who believe in conspiracy theories. And he said, now, come on. You don't, you don't believe in any conspiracy theories? <laughs> like, you believe the government's just batting a 1,000? They're telling you the truth all the time? You, you believe everything the mass media tells you? They're trying to communicate to millions upon millions of people. He says, you think they never lie? This comedian says, I have one son, one child that I'm responsible for. I'm supposed to raise him right, and I lie to him all the time. (laughs) And it was funny and sad at the same time. He he said one night he was standing in the kitchen, and and if this hits a little too close to home, I apologize. It sure did for me. He's standing in the kitchen, has already sent his boy to bed, and he's there in front of the refrigerator, and he's got a box of ice cream, and he's just eating ice cream (laughs) with a spoon. Doesn't even have a bowl, right? Has this happened to you before? Just me, okay. And, uh, and, and his son gets up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and he sees the light on in the kitchen. And so he wanders into the kitchen, and there's his dad eating ice cream. And his son goes, can I have some ice cream? His dad said, this ice cream's spicy. It's jalapeno flavored. You wouldn't like it. And he, <laughs> he sends his boy back to bed. Well, what did he do? He lied to his kid. I don't know if it's a real story or not. It was probably a comedy bit. But, but here's the deal. Let's get real. Have we ever lied? to the people we love on this planet? How would we answer that? Both Christina and I, we've got four kids. We we very foolishly likely (laughs) made the absolute commitment when our kids were young, we would never lie to them. And that has been one of the hardest things we've ever had to do. Because kids ask questions, right? (laughs) Kids ask very, very hard questions at a very young age. I will admit there have been times we have said, hey, not going to lie to you about that, but I'm also not going to explain that one to you fully right now. You're not quite old enough to grasp that. When you are old enough, I will explain that in detail. But, but not lying to our kids, that's been work. The comedian in this bit, he, if he was telling the truth, he intentionally lied to his kid. I don't like that very much. But here's the point. Here's the takeaway. If we're going to talk about love, we're going to talk about loving someone correctly, why on earth would we look to us? Why would we try to define love or explain love or model love by looking inside, by looking at the way people love? Because we're going to mess it up. Even if we have the very, very best of intentions. One of the most painful life lessons I've ever learned happened years ago, 11 years ago. My, my daughter Macy was 10 years old. And we, I always get emotional telling the story. And we wound up leaving her home alone. We didn't mean to. We were going to go vacation in France, and she was left, <laughs> left home alone to battle some ruthless criminals. No, that's a different story. I got that wrong. Here's what happened. 
we had just moved into a new house where we lived back in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Like we'd been there a day, two tops. We still had stuff in boxes. We didn't even know the house very well. I was coaching Trace's Little League baseball team. He was seven at the time. And so I had to go to practice, but Trace was sick, right? I still had to coach the team. Trace is sick. So Christina takes Trace to the doctor. And now it's coming up on practice time. Like, I got to go. So I call Christina. I was like, hey, you're almost done. She's like, yeah, I'm leaving. But I got to go by and get a prescription for Trace. It'll probably be like 20 minutes and then I'll be home. I'm like, golden. I'm going to go ahead and go. Because my two older boys were there, right? Gavin and Carson were like 12 and 13 at the time. They'd watched Macy and Trace before for a couple hours. I felt really good about this. So I leave. Gavin and Carson's there with Macy. Christina's on her way. And the older boys were supposed to go to youth group at the church that night. Somebody was going to come by and pick them up. And, and, but that was supposed to be like an hour. And they showed up early. And they came to the door. And Gavin and Carson, God love them, 13 and 12, were like, see ya. And left. <laughs> and left. Like, I'm sure she'll be fine on her own. She was not fine on her own. She was... She's 10 years old, and she'd never been by herself before in a house that she had no idea where anything is, doesn't know any of our neighbors, and she freaked out. And here's what she did. She tried to call me on the phone. She called me 14 times in three minutes. And I'm hitting ground balls to seven-year-olds. My, my phone's in the dugout. I never heard it ring. Now, praise the Lord, Christina showed up very shortly after that. And, and, and it was a learning opportunity. We had lots of chances to point her to Scripture and, and talk about God never leaving us or forsaking us, about why we have the Holy Spirit to be with us in times like that. I wish I hadn't had to teach her those lessons at 10 when she was scared half to death. They're good lessons to learn, but that isn't the way that we wanted to introduce them. Folks, if we want to talk about love, we can't start with us. Either intentionally or unintentionally, we are going to mess it up. When we talk about love for our family, love for our spouses, love for our friends, love for acquaintances, for strangers, when we talk about love at all, for that love to be perfectly good, we've got to recognize that it comes from God. That's it. That's the only way. Then as we go out and try and demonstrate that love, then we can talk about it right when we reference something that John talks about a little later in this chapter. Because he says this, we love, why? Because God first loved us. That's the only way we're going to be able to do it. And, and, and there's a harsh reality to that. Did God come to do that when we were at our most lovable? Did God come to love us when we were sweet and clean and so obedient? No. God loves us when we're unlovable. God sent his son, and that love is then modeled by this mission that God is while he's on this planet. He is out to seek and save the lost, and we see this so clearly in Scripture. This is a verse almost everybody knows, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, doesn't matter if you're sweet and clean. Whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Who? The world. This is John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Do we love that way? 
This is the most challenging of the whole passage. Romans 5, verses 6 and 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for who? Super great people? No, the ungodly. Is that a shock for some of us here today? What, God didn't die for the strong and the godly? No, he died for the weak and the grimy. He died for me in the midst of my addiction issues. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, we need a good model of what love is supposed to look like. It's Jesus. It comes in God, the the perfect, holy, sinless God of the universe approaching imperfect, unholy people in order to make the way for us to be reconciled back to him by professing faith in Jesus. That's it. That's love. That's better than candy and flowers. That's better than a diamond necklace. That's better than buying our kids stuff because we want to show them we love them. God's love is better because God's love is perfect. And that's what we're celebrating today, this third week of Advent. Love has come, and love is coming back. Came the first time as a little baby in the manger. It's coming back, and it's real love. It's not an emotion. It's an action. And if we can start to grasp that, if we can start to to wrap our minds around that, we'll realize we're not the originators of love. Love didn't start with us. It starts with God. That's a a big help, but then it moves us to the next part of our passage in a tough word in the Bible, propitiation. How many used propitiation in a sentence this week? Everybody talks about it, I know. It's a great word. You can't even spell it on words with friends. Even if props are already on there, it's too many letters. What does propitiation mean? The literal meaning of this word is it's the appeasing of wrath. Now we've got to go, what does wrath mean? Wrath is God's anger over sin. Uh Uh-oh, starting to get a little uncomfortable, Pastor James. We're not talking about love anymore, are we? No, we are. I'll remind every one of us that there is tension written into the Bible on purpose. There are a bunch of concepts we come face to face with that are kind of hard to wrestle to the ground. And we got to ask, what is God trying to teach me here? I didn't want that lesson of abandoning my girl, missing 14 calls in three minutes. I didn't want it, but it was a great lesson, right? But there's tension propitiation brings up that tension because if we we ask the questions well if God is love why is he getting so angry about my sin now we got to circle back we got to remember well God is love and God is holy and God is just and God is righteous and our unrighteousness provokes God's anger and this part we got to be really clear about that doesn't mean that God is angry at us It just means he's angry about our sin, just like we should be angry about sin. In this life, if we encounter someone who intentionally hurts someone defenseless, don't we get angry? Child abuse? Sex trafficking? There are things that should make us righteously angry, and that's okay. Because God is righteously angry about those things. He's always angry about our sin. And if we're going to talk about love, if we're going to understand it, we need to realize God has a way to appease anger over sin. Propitiation, the verb 
form of that word is the neat Greek word, helias komai. It literally means to satisfy the anger of God. Now, if we've had a bunch of experience loving people, I don't know that we have to struggle to grasp this concept so much. Because for us, people on this planet, even as imperfectly as we love, we understand we can get angry with people over ridiculous things they've done. We know this. When I was three years old, I drove a car for the first time. (laughs) Pretty exciting time. My my dad had gone to visit his parents, my grandparents, and he let my brother and I play in the car. I was three, he was five. I was sitting in the front seat pretending I was driving, and dad left the keys in the ignition. And somehow I managed to, to get the key turned, and I turned the wheel, and I put it in reverse, and I was driving. Woohoo! And I was so excited, but I, he had parked on an incline, and I drove down the street, and I obliterated my grandparents' neighbor's mailbox. <laughs> and, and at the sound of that, my dad came running out, and I went, I'm driving! And he was not as excited as I was. Go figure. <laughs> right? and, and he was angry. And now here's the deal. Was he angry at me? A little. Was he angry at himself for leaving the keys to the ignition? Oh, yeah, a lot. Were there consequences? Of course. There are consequences for the bumper of his car and for that mailbox that no longer existed. There's going to be consequences. But even at three, I think I understood this. My dad's anger over that situation didn't mean he didn't love me, right? We can grasp how those two emotions work together, right? Anger doesn't cancel out. Anger doesn't erase the feelings of love that we have. Even as fallen Christ followers, we can understand how these two things work together. I think the much harder concept of understanding how love and propitiation work comes from people who don't know God at all. We talked about this last week. Remember, people who are far, far from God, people who have never professed faith. Well, God still offers peace to them through Jesus. But for those people who aren't Christ followers, all we can really comprehend is, well, love, that comes from people. Love is something we create way down deep inside of us, right? Non-Christians and not yet Christians think people are the originators of love. So when those folks who don't know Jesus choose to live in a pattern that the Bible would openly call sinful, and those people who don't know Jesus are missing the mark of perfection that a holy God desires for his people when they demonstrate what their opinion of what they think love is supposed to look like, and then the world around them doesn't embrace that identity, when the rest of the world doesn't accept that alternative lifestyle, when the people who do know and love Jesus don't celebrate other people's sinfulness, don't celebrate people flaunting sin, those people who are choosing to live in sin, in a way the Bible declares to be sin, those sinners will rush to say, well, those Christ followers aren't very loving. What are they basing that on? Because they don't accept me the way that I am. They don't celebrate my sinfulness with me. That's an argument we will hear people say today. I'm just living my truth. I'm just living my life, and if you can't love me as I am, then you don't understand love. And church, that's a flawed argument. (laughs) That is not an accurate statement. Hear me on this, but but I see how people got there. It's because we started in the wrong place. We think we are the ones who define love. We are far, far too inadequate for that task. So what do we do? We, we struggle to grasp what propitiation is all about. I'm not sure we're the best folks to define the concept of God's perfect love because we wrestle with comprehending how love and anger can play well together. 
That's why we have people in this day and age who are openly living in sin, calling out people who follow Jesus, and they'll say, well, Christians, they're unloving because we won't celebrate sin. And it's all because these folks living in sin do not understand propitiation. They do not understand a holy God appeasing wrath over sin through his son. It's part of God's perfect love. Here's, I think, where we really mess this up. Because when this happens, there's an application that we are supposed to become involved in. Christ followers should see that as a great opportunity. We should see that as a wonderful chance to point people to Jesus. We should do that, of course, by speaking the truth in love like we talked about last week. But are we taking advantage of those opportunities? For someone who is far, far away, are we trying to point them to the gospel? Do we want to help them understand there's a tension that exists as we try to grasp the character of God, the nature of who Jesus is? I want to play a little game, and this worked pretty well at nine. I'll see how how you guys do with it. You don't have to close your eyes and picture this or whatever, but, but I love for us to get in our own heads. Imagine you're in love. Hopefully that's not too hard. Some of you, you immediately go to the most loving relationship with your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. It doesn't matter. It could be a familial relationship, love for a sibling, love for a child. It could be just a loving relationship you have with a friend. Everybody can participate in this exercise. Imagine someone you love. If it helps to close your eyes, you can do it. Imagine that person, whoever that first person you thought of, imagine them doing something that makes us angry. Imagine that person you love the most on this planet making fun of the Cleveland Browns. Can you believe it? Some of you guys have done this. Or the Seahawks or whoever your favorite team is. Imagine the person you love the most on this earth drinking your very last Diet Coke out of the fridge. I don't think all these illustrations should be about me. (laughs) These are things I get upset about. Let's broaden this. Imagine someone you love. Don't care who it is, your spouse, your best friend. They steal money from you. And they blow it. They go gamble at the casino. They lose your money. You with me? Imagine your kids, your siblings, they steal your car. Take your car without asking. They get in an accident. They wreck your car. How angry does that make you? If you had a percentage tracker, when you go to the doctor, they show you the smiley faces and they try and get you to rate your pain. Where are you? on this? <laughs> if we had an angerometer like that, how angry does that make you when you encounter a situation like that? Keep that in your head. Keep that number. Imagine the same scenario, but it's a stranger who stole your car and wrecked it. Same scenario, it's a stranger who stole your last Diet Coke. Where are you on the angerometer now? You don't have to answer out loud. Here's the deal. Is it less with the stranger? I bet it is. I bet we're still angry. I'd imagine it's less. Do you know why? We don't have deep feelings about that stranger. Stranger steals our car and wrecks it. I'm immediately going, I got insurance. I'm getting me a brand new car. We get kind of excited, right? Why is that? Because we don't love the stranger the same way we love our friend. The same way we love our spouse, our siblings, our children. We just are not capable of that, it seems. Now shift gears and think about this. God loves each and every person he has created to live on this planet. He loves us all the same. And we've already seen it from our text today. It's because he is love. 
Can we start to grasp this? At least a couple times here in John's writing, he says that God is love. But we got to reconcile that with 600 times we see in the Bible that God is holy. And so the love doesn't come independent of the holiness. It comes in conjunction with it. God is love and God is holy, so he cannot accept sin. He cannot tolerate sin. He certainly cannot celebrate sin. So what happens? God has a righteous anger towards sin. But in no way does that negate his love. He's just all those qualities at the same time. I recognize that that is too much. Smoke starts rolling out our ears thinking about this. But, But I can bottom line this with absolute certainty. The fact that Jesus serves as the propitiation for our sins, the fact that Christ's death on the cross paid the wages of sin for all mankind and did satisfy God's righteous anger over our sin, it doesn't in any way detract from the fact that God is love. Because love originates not in us, but from God, period. Now, if we're trying real hard, we can be loving, but that's because God is love. And that's because he first loved us. And so I hope, I pray, as we make attempts at being loving, that that our actions involve loving the way God does. Do our actions involve loving the unlovable? Do our actions involve moving towards others? Considering others more important than ourselves? Because that's what God modeled. That's what he demonstrated when he sent his son that first time. That's what we're going to see when he comes again to take all his followers, anyone who has ever professed faith, to be with him for eternity. That's the true pattern of love. It's moving towards others, even moving towards the unlovable, as Jesus did by laying down his life for them. Let me close with this. I read this story years ago when I was on Young Life staff, and I remember it really beat me up pretty hard. There was a father... And he had two young kids, a boy and a girl, and he took them out camping. And then they went up backwards. They went up high country. And, and he, they'd camped many times before. They'd looked at all the weather reports. It was late fall, but they felt they were, they were going to be safe. And, and they got up there and really enjoyed the first day camping, loved it. God's majesty, the mountains in the background, just beautiful. The second day, an, an unexpected winter storm blew in. High winds, biting cold heavy snow and ice. Here they were stuck in this tent, which offered absolutely no protection. So, so the father tucked his two young kids in against the mountainside, looking for some natural relief. And he took the only tarp they had, and he stretched the tarp out over them, and he used the tent stakes, and he hammered the tarp down at the bottom, and then he tried to pack snow and rocks and ice in on top to hold the tarp in over them, protect them from the elements. The storm was too fierce. It kept blowing the tarp down. And so what did that father do? He crawled up on the ridge and he laid on the top of the tarp. He held it down. He protected those kids. In the morning, the storm had passed. And the children were okay. And the father died. He gave up his life. He succumbed to the cold and to the weather. Gave up his life to protect those he loved. 
And we hear a story like that and we go, I'd do that for my kids. I'd do that for the people that I love. Would we do it for the people we don't love? Because that's what Jesus did. He came as an action. He came to model how we're supposed to love. Would we love like that for our enemies? Would we lay down our life? Jesus went to the cross. He died for my sins while I was yet a sinner. He satisfied the anger of God over sin. And he did that because he's love, period. And he first loved us to give us this example we're now supposed to follow, not just this Advent season, every day until he returns. Amen? God bless you guys. I stand up here every week and I tell you that I love you because I do. But I want you to know I'm, I'm challenged by this. Do I love you so much that I'd give up my life for you? I really do believe that I would. But I don't know that God's asking me to. I think he's asking me to do something harder. I think he's asking me to live my life in front of you. Day in and day out in a way that points to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Daddy, thank you for the opportunity to be together and to study your word. God, this is more than a Christmas story that we tell every year This in December. God, this is about how we're supposed to love like you love. About how we're supposed to model that by putting others before ourselves, by be, being willing to die for others. But God, also to be willing to live abundantly, pointing to you in the way that you get the glory. God, help us to do that as your church here at OCC. God, we love you and we praise you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.